Tjerna Grusev on City Breaks. Hello, greetings from City Breaks. This is City Breaks Munich, episode 7, the one in which it's time to start thinking about the most controversial aspect of Munich's history, namely its connection with Herr Adolf Hitler. I'm going to talk about how it was that Munich became known as the Hauptstadt der Bewegung, the capital city of the movement, the movement of course being National Socialism, and cover the main historical events that take us from the arrival of Hitler in Munich in 1913, right up to the outbreak of World War II. A little bit of history and some pointers on where in the city today you can see traces of that terrible period. So, pre-1913, Hitler, the aspiring artist, had been in Vienna, where things weren't going all that well, he'd been rejected from the Vienna Art School, and he came to Munich, knowing that it was a centre of art, to try his luck here. There's a nice description of the early days in a book called The Trial of Adolf Hitler by David King, which is, of course, largely about the trial, which in the early chapters gives you quite a lot of background as to how it got to that point. So this is what he writes about Hitler's attempts to establish himself as an artist when he arrived in Munich. Quote, He went to work painting postcards and watercolours, mostly of Munich's monumental structures, the medieval Frauenkirche with its 300-foot spires, the massive beer hall, Hofbräuhaus on the Platzl, the Italian at Fertherrnhalle, or Hall of Field Marshals, on the Odeonsplatz. He would then peddle his wares in cafes and beer halls and on street corners around the town. The word kitsch is believed to have been coined in Munich at this time to describe cheap keepsakes sold to tourists. Unlike many artists in the quarter, Hitler did not usually work outdoors in the natural light. He preferred to paint at his easel in his room, by his window overlooking a school playground. He used postcards or pictures which the landlord's 12-year-old son, Josef Pop Jr., or Peppy, fetched for him as models, tipping him with coins or sweets. Hitler would call his first 15 months in Munich the happiest and by far the most contented of his life. And David King goes on to describe the reminiscences of one Anna Pop, who was Hitler's landlady in his early years in Munich. She recalls him being shut up in his room, says he was a bit of a recluse, says he would venture out occasionally and come back with a sausage or a cake, but otherwise he spent most of his time painting and reading. People didn't recall him having visitors. Other people were quoted as saying that he didn't seem to make any close friends at all. And they remembered him for things like his sweet tooth, his very polite manners, and the fact that he always wore a clean frock coat because his landlord was a tailor and regularly pressed it for him. So far, so harmless. How did it go so badly wrong? Well, in 1914, Hitler was in the crowd when Ludwig III declared war on France and Russia, and he seemed to be very taken with the idea of fighting for Germany, so he volunteered for the Bavarian army. He became a corporal, in fact, on the Western Front, was decorated not once but twice with an Iron Cross, and it's felt generally that his time in the army gave him a sense of purpose. And so he would have been particularly devastated in 1918 when defeat came. It was viewed as a moral and physical shock for the whole country, but somebody like Hitler, who'd thrown himself into fighting, obviously felt that much more deeply, perhaps. When the war came to an end, he was back in Munich. He was in a military hospital because he'd been in a gas attack and he was recovering from the effects of that. And it was from there that he watched over the upheaval that took over Germany in 1918 after the defeat. It started actually not in Munich, but in Kiel, in North Germany, where there were disturbances and a breakdown of order, and where Ludwig III 
fled in the middle of the night, left the country because he realised he wasn't going to be able to stay in his position. Germany was declared to be a republic. And all of this filtered down to Munich as well, where Hitler was. So the radicals in 1919 declared Bavaria to be a Soviet republic. Apparently they had Lenin's blessing for this. But it didn't last very long because troops from North Germany, along with colleagues from the Bavarian Freikorps, marched into the city and took it back. The rebels were then duly shot without trial. Hitler is watching all of this and you can't help but fear perhaps learning from it. And historians tell us that all these factors combined to mean that the city was more receptive to the idea of Hitler coming along with his radical speeches, partly because of the civil unrest, partly because Germany had been so humiliated after its defeat, partly because Bavaria lost out in the Weimar Constitution, which set up the new Germany. It didn't have such a special status as it had had. So people were quite willing to hear that somebody was coming along to speak on their behalf and try and make things better. It's known that Hitler made his debut speech in the Hofbräukeller in October 1919, and in February 1920 he held his very first big rally at which he produced a document called the 25 Theses, expounding his ideas. And all of this came to a head on the 8th of November in 1923, when Hitler was due to speak at a meeting. It was scheduled to take place in the Hofbräuhaus. House. 350 invitations had been sent out, although in fact 3,000 people came. It had been advertised in the Münchner Augsburger Zeitung, so the main newspaper of the day. And when people arrived to hear the speeches, they realised that there were men blocking the exits, all the windows were covered, the hall was decorated with swastika banners. And Hitler arrived at half past eight and is described as follows, wearing an oversized black morning coat. Pinned to his chest were an Iron Cross first class and an Iron Cross second class. He went on to interrupt the person who was actually speaking. He stormed the stage, surrounded by his henchmen, who were wearing steel helmets and swastika armbands. And all of this is dramatically described in David King's book, The Trial of Adolf Hitler. So this is what he writes about the crucial moment. Quote, Hitler stood on a chair and shouted something, but his voice was lost in the tumult. A pistol was fired into the ceiling. Several eyewitnesses said that the shot came from one of Hitler's associates, perhaps his bodyguard. The crowd was still not silent. So Hitler raised his browning into the air and pulled the trigger, sending a second shot into the ceiling. Once he'd got everyone's attention, he reminded everybody that there were 600 men blocking the exits to the building and that no one was to leave. He went on to announce that the governments in Berlin and Bavaria had both been overthrown. That wasn't actually true at that moment. He was obviously hoping that it soon would be true. And he demanded that the three most powerful men in the room should stop and listen to him and give him ten minutes of their time, as he put it. Meanwhile, outside the building, Göring's stormtroopers were rounding up the Munich police and a list of other people who had been named in the hall by one Rudolf Hess. They included people like the Prime Minister of Bavaria, one Eugen Ritter von Knilling, and members of the cabinet, and members of the police. Hitler told them that all of this was going on. He announced that the revolution had begun against the Berlin government, and there were cries of Heil Hitler and thunderous applause, and the crowd in the Hofbräuhaus sang then the song Deutschland über alles. By the next day, the 9th of November, a 100,000 posters had been produced. They'd been put up everywhere in the city and distributed. There were articles in the newspapers, including the foreign press. And a key speech was given in the Marienplatz by Julius Streicher, who was known as Hitler's orator. 
He spoke to massive crowds and told them that, quote, the new government will hang Jewish profiteers from the lampposts and shut down Jewish, as he called it, stock exchange. There were plans to nationalise the banks. There would be bread for the hungry and justice for everyone after what he called the time of shame, by which I think he's referring really to the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I and in which Germany was forced to agree to a list of humiliating conditions and to agree to pay back massive war reparations. Another famous song sung at the time at this talk in Marienplatz is one called the Sturmlied, storm song of which one of the lines reads as follows, Germany awake, break your chains in two. Then there was a march from Marienplatz down to Odeonsplatz where trouble broke out and this is the event which became known as the Putsch. Shooting broke out, both sides, so that would be the police and the putschists, or the revolutionaries, both blamed each other later for having started the shooting. But, whichever the truth was, things soon escalated to a scene of horror and total confusion. Twenty people were killed, including four policemen, and about a hundred people wounded. On the dead body of one of the revolutionaries was found a blood-strained draft of the proposed new constitution, which called, amongst other things, for the abolition of Parliament, for Jews to be removed from the country, for wealth to be confiscated from all the wealthy Jews, and for the confinement of what were known as the regime's enemies in what they called collection camps. All of this, of course, chillingly prophetic of what we know was to come in the next two decades. So if you stand in Odeonsplatz today and look around you, you can think that that really is the place where the rise of Hitler officially began, where he made that jump from just somebody who made rousing speeches to somebody who was actually taking over power. The very next day, he tried to escape to Austria. I think he probably thought he'd go and regroup somewhere and then carry on. He disguised himself as a peasant, tried to cross the border, pretending he was just returning from the market. But in fact, he was recognised and caught, and that led to his trial a few weeks later, again in Munich, on a charge of high treason, Hochverrat, and the trial was to last four weeks. It was held in open court, which was later deemed to have been a great mistake, because what it actually did then was give Hitler a platform from which to announce his opinions and views, much of which was taken up by the press and reprinted, and therefore his ideas were spread far more widely and efficiently than perhaps he would have been able to do himself. And it's known, in fact, that many people who read what he was saying did support him. So he talked, for example, about the need to break free from the Treaty of Versailles, all the Germans who felt that their country had been badly humiliated were going to be quite disposed to take that seriously. He would also talk about his burning love of what he called our fatherland. And he had a very strong defence lawyer who called for the need to acquit Herr Hitler, saying that, quote, he is the one who will lead the way to further growth and prosperity for our great German fatherland. He talked emotionally about the terrible state to which the German people had been reduced, saying that they had been, quote, driven into the streets in despair. He was utterly scathing about the Versailles Treaty and how it had left Germany subservient to other countries. They promised world peace, he said, but what did Germany get? A world peace over fields of our dead bodies. He talked about the 17 million Germans who had been transferred to other countries against their will when the German borders had been moved. And the fact that these 17 million Germans were now living under foreign governments all of this very emotive and likely to attract support. 
He made many references to the hunger that German citizens were suffering and the fact that however long and hard they worked, they didn't seem to get anywhere. The currency was in a state of ruin. And that was the fault of the criminals, as he called them, running the government and ruining the economy. Standing there in the middle of this Munich court, he would thump the table and accuse the German government of, quote, high treason, destroying a nation of 70 million people. Again, David King is very good on this in his book, The Trial of Adolf Hitler. So here's a quote from the end of the description of the trial. Hitler's rhetoric aimed to seduce his targeted audience, the rural and the royalists, students and veterans, the disgruntled and the alienated, people who hated the Versailles Treaty, the middle classes who had been devastated in the hyperinflation, workers, craftsmen and artisans continuing to struggle in the class system, still reeling from the economic plight, people looking for something or someone to blame for their anger and resentment. And then he quotes verbatim Hitler's last pronouncement when he was defending himself, quote, even if you pronounce us guilty a thousand times, the eternal goddess of the eternal court of history will smilingly tear up the proposition of the prosecutor and the verdict of the court. She will acquit us. And then David King describes how Hitler sat down in a silent courtroom and the only next words that were heard were from the judge, the trial is concluded. Despite his rhetoric and the power of many of his arguments, in fact, a guilty verdict was returned. He was found guilty of high treason and sentenced to five years in prison. He was taken off then to the Landsberg prison, quite near Munich, although in fact he only served eight and a half months. David King describes the moment when Hitler, standing at an upstairs window in the courtroom, waiting for the van to come that was going to take him to prison, and how there was, quote, a frenzy of applause from the crowd outside, so people who'd come to show their support for him and to say that whatever the verdict, they agreed with his arguments. Hitler, of course, was very dismissive about what had happened to him, using arguments like, quote, there is no such thing as high treason against the traitors of 1918. And he immediately set about using the time when he was in prison to write his book, the now hugely famous Mein Kampf, so written just a few miles outside Munich. It was eventually titled Mein Kampf, My Struggle, although his original proposed title was Four and a Half Years of Struggle Against Lies, Stupidity and Cowardice. It's a long, rambling, difficult read, a strange book, partly autobiographical, partly a political treatise, but it became a bestseller later on. From 1930 onwards, when he really had risen to political prominence, people went out in their thousands to buy copies of Mein Kampf. We have a description from the warden of the Landsberg prison, where Hitler spent time in the cells, describing Hitler as follows, quote, He occupies himself every day for many hours with the draft of his book. David King's quite amusing on the style of the book, pointing out that it was really a written version of the speeches that he'd given, and whereas he did seem to have some oratorical skills and the ability to take the crowd with him, this did not, as David King puts it, transfer well from the beer hall onto the page. And here he is in full flight about the language used in the book. Quote, Verbose, repetitive and mired in long-winded digressions, filled with venomous hatred, Hitler's clumsy, bombastic text abounds in artificially constructed terms, formed by piling nouns upon nouns, and meanders through a thicket of dependent clauses. The journalist, Dorothy Thompson, described an overwrought style that read like one long speech, 
bogged down with ghastly rants about people and races and written in inaccurate German and with unlimited self-satisfaction. But I don't think you can deny the massive, massive impact this wretched volume had. And it is quite spooky to read again in David King's book about how the warden had set up the cell to make it easier for Hitler to carry out his writing. So he had a little varnished table to put his typewriter on and he was supplied with paper by the warden and his friend Winifred Wagner sent along a package of pens, ink, rubbers and carbon paper. Somebody else sent him a large wadge of Nazi party stationery, all emblazoned with a swastika. And here, to finish this section, is David King on the daily routine which Hitler kept while he was writing in prison. Quote, Additional privileges granted by the prison warden allowed Hitler, for a small fee, to keep his lights on for two extra hours. He was also up early in the morning, though this was not a habit for him, either before the putsch or later. Several prisoners recall hearing him type around 5am. After Hitler wrote a section of his manuscript, he sometimes took it to Rudolf Hess in cell 5, and they discussed it over tea. Another historian with lots to say about the quality of Hitler's Mein Kampf is A.J. Nichols, who wrote Weimar and the Rise of Hitler. So here he is on the quality of the writing. Quote, Mein Kampf was a long, rambling, badly written book which demonstrated that Hitler's gifts as an orator could not easily be turned to literary purposes. It contained many errors of punctuation, style and grammar which were only gradually eliminated in later editions. So the book was finished and published and Hitler was released from prison. You'll be pleased to know that A.J. Nichols tells us he was released, quote, in time for Christmas in 1924. And it is astounding, isn't it, to think that from that date, 1924, until 1933, when he took over power as Reichskanzler, he really achieved so much in terms of gaining power and influence and bending everybody to his will, just in those few short years. And much of that happened in Munich. Eventually, of course, he was in Berlin a lot as well, but much of the early years he did spend in Munich and built his power base from there. It could be the subject of a whole other podcast series to talk about the rise of Hitler, and I don't think that's really appropriate here. So from that period, 1924 onwards, I just want to highlight a few things which are particularly Munich-based. There are a number of buildings in Munich listed in the guidebooks as being places where Hitler lived at his various times in the city. The main one, the last one, where he lived from 1929, in which he kept right up until his death in 1945, was a nine-bedroom flat on a square called Prince Regentenplatz, so Prince Regent Square. If you find your way to the square, it's number 16 where he used to live. This would be the flat where he hosted Mussolini in 1937, where he met Neville Chamberlain in 1938, and the flat associated with his very strange affair with Angelica Maria Raubal, who was really his niece, as in she was the daughter of his half-sister. She arrived in Munich to study medicine, and Hitler did seem to be very taken with her. She had an unusual carefree manner for a young woman of the time, which entranced him. They began to spend a lot of time together, and it wasn't long before the rumours started that they were actually having an affair. It is known that she moved eventually into the flat on the Prince Regentenplatz in 1929. In September 1931, she was found dead in one of the rooms of the flat with Hitler's pistol by her side. Various theories about what happened, even today it's not really proven. Some people thought that maybe it was suicide because she couldn't take Hitler's possessiveness anymore. He was very controlling, used to forbid her, for example, from going to visit Vienna where she had family. 
but others would say they find it more likely that actually she was murdered on Hitler's orders because she was pregnant by him and that would have been a terrible embarrassment. At the time of this tragedy, Hitler was nowhere to be seen. He was in Hamburg. And I don't think historians have managed to agree about which of the theories, or indeed any other theory, is the most likely. A Munich institution which still exists today and which was very much connected with Hitler in the 1930s is the Bavaria Film Company. The Nazi party bought this facility in 1932 and they soon began churning out propaganda films. The first full-length one was called S.R. Mann Brandt, which translates as Stormtrooper Brandt, a film specifically made to put forward the ideas of National Socialism in what they called the Time of Struggle. No expense spared, it had 1,600 extras in it, and was followed a few months later by another film called Hitler Junger Quex, or Hitler Youth Quex, which was subtitled, quote, A Film About the Sacrificial Spirit of German Youth. Propaganda films were produced there right up until the end of World War II, along with films known as the Heimat films, Heimat being the German for homeland. So this was a series of films that were aiming to promote traditional German way of life and evoke nostalgia in the viewers, make them understand what it was they were fighting for to keep Germany as it should have been and had been in the past. As an aside, Bavaria Film exists today. I think you can go and visit it. And they've made films there, including Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, so quite a move on from their 1930s productions. It's also the company that produced Der Untergang, translated into English as Downfall, which was a dramatisation of Hitler's last days, the days he spent in the bunker before he took his own life, and which was actually the first ever German film in which a German actor played Hitler. This was in 2004, and until that date, no actor, no German actor, had been willing to take it on. Someone else very much associated with Hitler in the Munich years was Unity Mitford, one of the six Mitford sisters, the one who spent several years living in Munich in the 1930s and got to know Hitler really quite well and wrote about him. And gives us lots of little insights into how he was seen in those days. So, for example, writing on July the 1st, 1934, she describes waiting outside the Brauners' house, which was the Nazi party headquarters, on Königsplatz, because the crowd thought that Hitler and Goebbels were in there and they were waiting to see them come out. And this is what she writes. While we stood there, several huge columns of SS, SA and Stahlhelm marched past us to the Brown House and huge lorries full of sandbags with SS or Reichswehr sitting on top. There were SS men dashing about the whole time on motorbikes and cars. It was all very exciting. In fact, that particular day, things fell flat because word went round that actually Hitler and Goebbels had left by a back door and they were waiting for nothing. But writing just over a year later, in September 1935, Unity describes how she was walking up Ludwigstrasse on her way, wait for it, to the hairdressers. When she caught sight of Hitler, she tried very hard to catch his attention, saluting, etc., but says rather sadly, he didn't see me. A bit later on the same day, she was in a cafe where Hitler was, and he sent one of his men over to ask her to come and talk to him. So this is how she describes that. Quote, I feel sure the Führer had pain, which I know he sometimes does have. For one thing, he didn't stand up when I came to the table, which he always does. Also, the skin around the outside corners of his eyes was yellow. And then he couldn't seem to keep still. He moved backwards and forwards the whole time, with his hands on his knees. You know how he does. And she goes on to describe the chit-chat that they had. They talked about the Partei Tag, so a party day that's been, that had been held. 
for the National Socialist Party. He claimed to have seen her at the opera, and, as she explains in great detail, he, quote, put his hand on my shoulder twice and on my arm once. It's known that they met really quite frequently over a period of two or three years, at lunches, in cafes, at meetings. But the whole thing came, from Unity's perspective anyway, to a completely disastrous end. She was so upset in 1939 when she heard that Britain and Germany were going to war. The two countries she loved most at war with each other, she just really couldn't cope. And she reacted by taking herself to the Englischer Garten with a pistol and shooting herself. She shot herself in the head, was severely wounded and hospitalised. It's known that Hitler came twice to visit her in hospital. And eventually she was, when she was a bit better, transported back to England, where she lived until 1948, but where, in fact, she never was the same again. She was unable to live on her own or look after herself. You can get a lot of detail about Hitler's time in Munich in the 1930s by reading a book called Hitler's Interpreter by Paul Schmidt, who was indeed Hitler's interpreter. The book's available in English as well, and it describes all kinds of historical events from that very particular perspective. You can read, for example, about Il Duce's visit, the visit of Mussolini in 1937, when Hitler and Mussolini drove through the city centre to what Paul Schmidt describes as very cool public applause, which surprised him because they'd been in Nuremberg a few days earlier and been very rapturously received. But on this particular day in Munich, he overheard a comment from someone in the crowd saying, quote, Munich people can't stand a rabble-rouser. I'm not clear whether that's referring to Hitler or to Mussolini, or possibly to both of them. And then the last Munich event that I want to mention took place in November 1939, because in the next episode we're going to go on and talk about Munich in actual wartime. But this was when a bomb was planted in the Bürgerbräu Keller. One Johann Georg Elser decided that he would go to one of Hitler's speeches and murder him. But unfortunately, it went wrong because Hitler uncharacteristically didn't speak for as long as had been planned. He left ten minutes early, and when the bomb went off, he was no longer there. Elsa was caught and taken to Dachau concentration camp and shot. So, just to round off the episode, I'd like to mention that if you actually go to Munich, you can, through the tourist office or indeed through various private companies, find a number of walking tours, often called Hitler's Munich, where somebody will take you around the city and point out all the places that are most connected with him. I went on one of these when I was in Munich, thinking that I was bound to learn lots of interesting things. I'm afraid the rest of the family were rather dismissive about this. They certainly didn't want to go, and they've referred to it ever since as Mum's Hitler Tour. But it was absolutely fascinating. We stood outside a building that Hitler had painted and the guide actually had a copy of the painting he'd made so you could look at the building and look at Hitler's attempt to represent it. Quite spooky. We went to the Hofbräuhaus and went to the upstairs room in the beer hall where the speech was actually held on the night before the putsch. And we went to the Odeonsplatz, the place where the violence took place and saw the memorial plaque on the wall there to the four policemen who were killed trying to stem the tide of revolutionaries. So those are two of the main places connected with the information that you've had in this episode, and there were a lot of other places. I'm going to mention four or five more in quite some detail at the beginning of the next episode, when we're going to go on and think about Munich in World War II, and think about the places in the city today which give you an insight into that period.
So for today then, I think that's everything. I hope you found episode 7 interesting and informative and I hope you'll join me for episode 8 in a week's time. Just remains for me then to thank you very much for listening, vielen Dank, and to wish you goodbye in German. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>